This week, I read an article from a pastor who was giving advice to fellow pastors about how to preach on Christmas Eve. This is what he said, dear partner in preaching, here's a word of advice as you prepare your Christmas Eve sermons. Keep it short, keep it sweet, and keep it simple. Well, I'm going to aim for two out of three. (laughs) Actually, I think I've managed to keep the message shorter We'll see how that goes. Hopefully, you'll find the message to be sweet, but it will not be simple. It will not be shallow or superficial. I'm going to do my best to explain some rather deep theological truth, and if you do your best to follow along, you and I will never look at Christmas the same again. Incidentally, while I was working on this sermon at a coffee shop, I ran into someone who's been watching online, and he was with another guy that I've gotten to know, and so they both asked me about the message for our Christmas Eve services. So I decided, since I'm getting to know them, to actually sit down at their table, and I said, okay, you asked, let me give it to you. And so I preached the sermon to them in much shorter fashion, in much rougher form. And when I was done, I felt pretty good about the summary that I had given them for the sermon until I noticed one of the guys started frowning. This big frown on his face, and he said these words, that was all pretty confusing. (laughs) I told him I need to go back to the drawing board. And so I went back, and because of his input, I decided to come up with a one-sentence summary of today's sermon. Here it is. The story of Christmas is all about the return of God's glory. Well, let's begin by defining the word glory. Glory literally means heavy in weight. It means important. It means significant. It means having a great reputation. It means splendor, brightness, beauty, worthiness, and honor. God's glory is the sum total of the weightiness of all of his attributes. It has to do with the fame of his holy name and represents his presence and his power. God's Shekinah glory is the transliteration of a Hebrew word meaning the one who dwells. So when the invisible God manifests his presence, he makes his glory visible in profound and powerful ways by descending to dwell among people. So when God made his glory known, he did so by using a thick cloud or by displaying the bright light of a fire. Oh, we see that in Exodus 13, 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and night. So God guided and guarded his people through a visible manifestation of his presence. Well, let's drill down a little bit more. How was that glory displayed? 
In Exodus 25, 8, God instructed Moses and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And so this was a portable worship center. It was a tent where God's Shekinah glory shone over the mercy seat between the two golden cherubim. Now, at Christmas, we often see images of cherubs, like sweet, chubby angels with wings. Well, that's not what cherubim are. Cherubim is plural for cherub in the Bible. These are mighty, winged, angelic beings who protect and magnify the glory of God. Outside above the holy place was this manifested glory of the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. These were visible reminders that God was always with his people while they did laps in the wilderness for 40 years. Exodus chapter 40 describes how God demonstrated his powerful presence with an unforgettable display of glory. Check this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And what was that like? Well, we, we learn here, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. Why? Well, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. So 440 years later, Solomon was charged with building a more permanent worship center, the temple, God reiterated his promise in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 13, and I will, here's the word, dwell among the children of Israel, and I will not forsake my people Israel. Uh, check out 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So here's what we've seen. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, the portable worship center, and the glory of the Lord is now filling the temple. Now, unfortunately, even though God displayed his presence in a very powerful way, God's people, well, just like us, started to take God's glory for granted. Now we begin seeing how God's glory departs well, let me just choose one example. When the people became spiritually sloppy, they started sinning in big ways. They were at war with the Philistines. It wasn't going so well, so they decided to bring the Ark of the Covenant with them into battle. Well, the Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box. It was covered with gold inside and out. This is where God was said to dwell. Well, let me help us a little bit more. This is what Harrison Ford was searching for in Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> and this is not the ark that perhaps you've heard in the Bible in Genesis, Noah's ark. This is different. According to Numbers 4.15, only the high priest could touch it. But God would not allow himself to be treated like a good luck charm. And so he allowed the ark to be captured by their enemies and 30 thousand soldiers were slaughtered. 
Now, when Eli the priest was told that his sons died in the battle and that the ark was now captured, it was in the hands of the enemies, the priest heard that news, he fell backwards in his chair, he broke his neck, and he died. His daughter-in-law was with him. When she heard her husband died in the battle and when she saw her father-in-law die and when she heard that the ark of God was captured, she was pregnant. She went into labor and before giving birth, she named her son Ichabod and then she died. Now listen to this summary in 1 Samuel 4.21. She named the child Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel. She repeated that lament, very next verse, verse 22, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. That name Ichabod literally means inglorious or there is no glory. So catch this, the glory of God has now departed from earth. Oh, let me just clarify, God has glory to, prior to and apart from any external manifestation of it. So God's glory is always there, but the physical manifestation of it is now gone. Let me fast forward. Many years after the ark had been returned from, returned to Israel and placed within the most holy place in the temple, there's a vivid description of the glory of God departing found in the book of Ezekiel. The glory of God filled the temple for some 350 years, but because of the people's persistent sin, their rebellion, their idolatry, God raised up the Babylonians who came from the north, came down and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple before the temple was destroyed. In vivid detail, we see how God's glory departed slowly and even reluctantly. God's glory left in stages to show his grace giving people an opportunity to repent and return to him. So here's what happened. In chapter 8, we read that God's glory was enthroned over the ark. And then God's glory lifted up over the ark and moved toward the threshold of the temple. Threshold like the doorway. And then God's glory lifted up again and went to the entrance of the temple. And then finally, God's glory lifted, left the temple and went on the Mount of Olives, and then went up into heaven, returned to heaven. And so as a result, God was no longer dwelling with his people. And the display of his glory on earth was just this distant memory. And after God's glory departed from the temple, there's no record of God's Shekinah glory returning when the next temple was built after the exile. After under Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Haggai, they built another temple, but there's no outward manifestation of his glory there. Then with Herod's temple, which took 46 years to build and was glorious, there's no evidence of a visible display of God's glory within it either. So, Let's get a sense of the picture. Things are very bleak. People are waiting for a display of God's glory to reappear. There's a verse in Isaiah 64 that captures what people are feeling. It's like this plaintive plea, this cry as they look up toward the heavens and this cry echoed across the centuries. Well, it reads like this. Oh, that you would rend the heavens 
and come down. God's people are like, God, we've heard about your glory. It was here on the earth. It's gone. God, would you just open up the heavens and come down? We are in a mess. Our sins are consuming us. God, would you come down here? One of our Christmas carols captures this, and perhaps when we sing it, we don't recognize it, but oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Oh, and now we see, after centuries of silence, God once again exhibits this explosion of sight and sound. And this time, it's to lowly shepherds. Oh, listen to Luke chapter 2, verse 9. And an angel of the Lord, this could have been one of the cherubim, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the what? Say it with me. And the the glory's back. The glory of the Lord shone around them like God's Shekinah glory. And they were filled with great fear. You would be too. Let me drop down to verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel. So there's one angel. And now there's a multitude of the heavenly host. Like breaking through as the heavens open, the sky filled with these adoring angels breaking through the heavens and proclaiming that God's glory had returned in the birth of a baby. Listen again for the word glory in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. These angels celebrated the return of God's glory to earth. God's glory had returned to dwell with people again. So here's where we've been. We've moved from the bad news of Ichabod's lost glory to the good news of great glory brought by Emmanuel. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Now the story of Christmas is all about the return of God's glory. Oh, but wait, there's more. This celebration is in the superlative. Glory to God in the highest, the loftiest, the most elevated. God is at the highest level, the peak, the summit. He's the most beautiful. He's the brightest. He's the most brilliant. There is no one higher. There is nothing greater. Among the Jews, this is the name Elion, highest, the main name for God. Now, to know the Christmas narrative, we go to the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. It gives the details surrounding the birth of Jesus. The Gospel of John provides the backstory or the theology behind the nativity. John 1.14 is startling in its simplicity, but it's also incredibly deep. Listen now to these words. And the word became flesh and Oh, do you see it? Dwelt among us. And we have seen his, what? Glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so when that phrase said the word became flesh, that right there is the single most unique quality of Christianity. It makes it qualitatively different from any other religion. God became 
flesh. The miracle of Christmas is the infinite becoming an infant. The whole superstructure of Christianity rests on this truth. Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. A theologian described it like this, God must be able to come over to our side without leaving his own side. Astronaut James Irwin, who traveled to the moon, had this to say about Christmas. There's something more important than man walking on the moon, and that is God walking on the earth. Oh, check out this next phrase, and dwelt among us. That refers to pitching one's tent. More specifically, it means to settle, to stay, to inhabit. In the Old Testament, it denotes the idea of residence. One paraphrase puts it like this. Jesus came and he moved into our neighborhood. So when we consider that phrase, dwelt among us, we might be tempted to think it's something like this. Jesus came to our earth to hang out with us. Ah, but John used a specific word that would make those who knew their Old Testament have goosebumps. Do you know what that word is? Dwelt is tent of meeting. Or more literally, it's the same word used for tabernacle. In John 2.11, we read that when Jesus turned water into wine, he manifested his glory. In John Luke 9.32, Jesus was transfigured. The disciples saw his glory. Hebrews 1.3 says the Savior is the outshining Shekinah glory of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. In John 2.14, the Jews were mystified. They were mad because Jesus, as he looks at the temple, beautiful building, took 46 years to build. He said, when that temple's destroyed, I can raise it up in three days. They're like, yeah, right, you can. They were not expecting his answer. But he was speaking about the temple, listen, of his body. The body of Jesus is the new tabernacle and the new temple. Now, with all that as background, hear John 1.14 again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Let me say it as clearly as I know how. In a similar way that God dwelt with his people in the tabernacle and in the temple, he now dwells with people through his only son, Jesus Christ. In him, the glory of God has descended and he has pitched his tent to dwell among us and with us. God's good news comes into our bad news. <laughs> Centuries of waiting are now over. Friends, the story of Christmas is all about the return of God's glory. Oh, we might as well go deeper. On Palm Sunday, do you know where Jesus was before he went and got on the colt and went into Jerusalem? He was on the Mount of Olives. He departed from the Mount of Olives, reversing the order of the departure of God's glory in Ezekiel. He left the Mount of Olives, rode on a donkey, fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah 9, 9. He came into Jerusalem. He wept over the city. The people give out this cacophony of praise, Luke 19, 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and, oh, this is beautiful, glory Sounds like the angels. In the highest. They're saying that about Jesus. Do you know where Jesus went after arriving 
in Jerusalem, the king of glory went into the temple. And do you know what he did when he got there? Verse 45 tells us, Emmanuel cleansed the temple because it had become Ichabod. In Matthew 23, 38, when Jesus looked at the temple, he said these words, he lamented, see, your house is left to you desolate. This was the final judgment given to Israel by the king of glory because of their rejection of him. The temple is left desolate, which means abandoned to ruin because it had become Ichabod. The temple was now devoid of God's glory. Oh, let's fast forward into the future. The end of the book of Ezekiel, chapter 43, we see a description of what Jesus will do at his second coming. Jesus has come once. We live in the in-between time, and the Bible says he is coming again. Jesus will enter the future temple. Listen, then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth, oh, let's just pause. The earth what? Shone with his glory. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. God's glory will come back to stay. Notice when Jesus returns, God's glory returns. We see glory delivered Words of Jesus, Matthew 24, verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Do you know when Jesus comes again? In Zechariah 14, 4, it says that he will land and stand on the Mount of Olives before entering the east gate. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. Oh, I can't wait to take us to the end of the Bible. Check this, Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold the, oh, let's just pause there. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 11, the holy city Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper. Verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city. Why? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. I've preached that four times this weekend, and every time it hits me. And friends, that is only available to those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's verse 27. Oh, but one more thing. This glory needs to be discovered by each of us. Don't miss this. God's glory was previously tied to a place 
Well, now it's all wrapped up in a person, and his name is Jesus. And when you and I put our faith in him, his glory comes and resides within us. Edgewood attender Brian Labarge passed along some great insight this week. This is what he said. The pillar of cloud and fire certainly paint a picture of the church at the day of Pentecost when the mighty rushing wind and tongues of what? Fire stood above, like over the tabernacle, stood above every believer. This morning when I was praying, I went to John 17, 24. Jesus in his prayer said this, I desire that they, his followers, see my glory. And I pray that we would see his glory today. Because in 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says the glory of God now dwells within his church. And 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 20 says God's glory dwells within individual Christians. Or do you not know that your body is a, here's the word, a temple. So where does God reside now? Where does he dwell? Within his church and within believers, the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Therefore, you are not your own. This is a challenge for us. We've been bought with a price, and so therefore, we must glorify God in our bodies. And so just as the tabernacle was at the center of Israel's camp, so Christ must be at the center of our lives. Just as sacrifices for sin were offered at the tabernacle, so Jesus is our complete and final sacrifice, giving us unfettered access to the Almighty. Oh, let's go back to John 1.14 and just pick up the last phrase. It's a powerful invitation, full of grace and truth. That word full means abounding or complete. Grace refers to a favor done without expectation of return. Truth has the idea of that which is factual, pure, sincere, without error. So grace and truth, well, frankly, those are two concepts that we don't often see appearing together, certainly not in our culture. You see, as humans, we tend to err on one side or the other. If we stress grace, we can be too quick to let something slide. If we pull the truth trigger too quickly, we can wipe someone out with our judgment. Grace without truth can lead to sloppy sentimentality, and truth without grace can lead to religious rigidity. But with Jesus, you can always count on both truth and grace. Get this. He tells the truth about your situation. He tells the truth about my situation, about my sins. And then his grace causes him to forgive us for our sins and to stick with us the whole way. So at Christmas, we're reminded that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. When you consider the manger, consider it filled with the awesomeness of God's glory and God's grace. But we're also faced with truth because of our sin Jesus Christ came as our sin substitute. Romans 3.23 says, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So because he is full of grace, you can come to him today just as you are without having to clean up your act first. Oh, I have some good news for you. You don't have to do penance. You don't have to pay off your sins. You also don't have to perform to get acceptance from God 
And because he's full of truth, you can come in complete confidence that he will keep his promise to forgive your sins and grant you eternal life. That's grace and that's truth. And without both working together, we would have neither. So at Christmas, we see that Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. Jesus became what he had never been before without losing what he had always been. Several years ago, I was given a bird feeder. It was in the middle of winter, and for some reason, I hung the bird feeder up, but I never put any bird seed in it. And we had one of those crazy cold spells. You know, the bird feeder's like swinging in the wind. There's no bird seed in it. And for some reason, I started feeling sorry for the birds. I told Megan, our youngest, she was 17 at the time, that I was now officially old because I was bothered about the birds. She agreed with me. (laughs) I'm probably old enough to start watching Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy as well. Anyway, I filled up the bird feeder to the top, but no birds came. They didn't come for breakfast. They didn't come for lunch or for dinner. They completely ignored it. This went on for two days. I kept thinking about the birds. I was more worried about them than I should have been and started wondering, how do I get a message to the birds that there's free food for them? I thought about putting up a sign, but that wouldn't work. Actually, the only way I could communicate with them was if I became a bird so I could tell them. So I'm not only getting old, I'm also losing my mind. (laughs) But listen, Jesus became one of us in order to get a message to us that he is the king of glory who has come to dwell among us so that you and I can dwell with him forever. One author said it like this, Christmas is the end of thinking that you're better than someone else because Christmas is telling you that you could never get to heaven on your own. God had to come to you. Let me come back to the pastor who said to keep Christmas Eve sermon short, sweet, and simple. He also said these profound words. If you really want to keep it simple, you could reduce the Christmas message even further picking up the two words of the angel's message that capture the heart of the Christian message. To you. For you. Jesus died instead of you. Then I wonder, I don't know where you've been at in your spiritual journey. My guess is in the room today, We have some who are just starting out. Some of you have not been thinking at all about God. Some of you are just like, you feel like God's drawing you. And some of you are here to worship. Maybe you're engaging online. We're all at different places. Could I encourage you to take your next step? And some of you are ready to take the step of salvation, to ask Jesus to save you from your sins and to come into your life. I'm going to end by praying a prayer. And if this prayer resonates with where you're at, you could just say the words with me quietly, silently, um, as I lead us in prayer. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? You could say something like this. God, all, all this about your glory, if I'm honest, I don't, I don't think about your glory. I think about my own glory. 
my own wants, my own pleasure, my own needs. I admit that I'm proud. I admit, well, I just admit what you already know. I'm a sinner. And God, I, I want to turn from how I've been living right now. I know I fall way short of your glory. I now understand that you came to earth to dwell among us and you're inviting me now to ask you to dwell within me. And so I ask you, Jesus, to come into my life. I gratefully receive your gift of salvation. Thank you, King of glory, for coming to earth. And I believe you're the Son of God. You died on the cross for my sins. You rose from the dead on the third day. Thank you for bearing my sins and giving me the gift of eternal life. I believe and now I receive so that I can be born again, so that I can become your child. Come into my life, Lord Jesus, be my savior and help me to live my life to give you the glory you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.